Hey, this is Elizabeth with Austin Enneagram, and today I'm doing Chapter 6 in Helen Palmer's book. And my guest is Kathy Sever, who is a dear friend of mine who I met when I moved to Austin when she, all our kids were taken care of by a beautiful woman named Sharon who lived in my house. And so I met all these mothers and children that way. And our kids grew up together, and she is the founder of Fort Lonesome, which is an extraordinary company that makes embroidered suits, really all kinds of things, but nowadays it seems like a lot of beautiful suits, dresses, all kinds of things, but chain-stitched and embroidered and bedazzled, but not just, not just chain-stitched suits, but hand-done and beautifully conceptualized and the color, the gradations and designs of these of these embroideries are just astounding and I I say to her and she of course as a six probably does not want to hear it but I, I think she will be in the history books and I think fashion classes will teach what she ha has given to this world and uh, it's incredible and it's a it's a a real treat to know her and I'm excited to talk to her today because she has a very very clear way of talk of seeing how her mind works and putting it into words and so it's a real it's really helpful to have her kind of open up what sixes are up to for us so I hope you enjoy our conversation today I really certainly did She's a six. Helen's a six. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did not realize that. So it's got to be, it's got to be spot on, right? Uh, yeah, I'm still so curious about just the way that different, the different, what do you call it, the different types, like self-pres and sexual and all that, like, what are those called? The instincts. I, Instinct. She puts like, she puts like one word in each chapter for the instincts, <laughs> which is kind of wild. So a sexual six, strong and beautiful. I bet she's a sexual six. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> she, um, a social six, dutiful. A self-pressed six, warm and affectionate. Then, then let's go back to my type. Point four, sexual. Her one word. Can't wait to say it. Oh my god. Hateful. Oh. <laughs> wow. I know. So that's when, I mean, actually, I think it's a really good example of how you have to, you can't just take these things and not contextualize them or understand them a little more deeply. Yeah. That's, I mean, I know, and like, I think Russ Hudson said something about how fours are the most, I can't ever remember the word, it's not hateful, but it's similar, spiteful, something horrible that we are. Anyway, on the Enneagram, he thinks fours are the most something very aggressive and mean, um, and I, I think it, you 
know, I think it's true. I feel it. I feel I battle it, you know? Uh-huh. But anyway. It's interesting because you would think you would get a spectrum <clears throat> in terms of the word that was, like, in health and in true. crisis. True. But. True. Anyway, thanks for coming. Um, so happy to be again. And Kathy is, uh, she lives nearby and she's a good friend and she's been coming to the monthly salons, number nights, and gives us so much good feedback. Um, you're one of the rare sixes that hangs in there. Um, sixes and aggressive numbers tend to not hang in there with work, Enneagram workshops. So, huh. Yeah, it's, like writ large, that's seen in I, and let's just say in my life experience, which mm-hmm. is as far as workshops goes, pretty. You know, I've been to a lot. So anyway, we'll just dive in here. Sixes lost faith in authorities when they were young. They remember being afraid of those who had power over them, of being unable to act on their own behalf. Those memories have carried over into adult life as a suspiciousness of other people's motives. Sixes try to ease this insecurity by either seeking a strong protector or by going against authority in the devil's advocate stance. There is both the wish to find a leader, to give one's loyalty to an organization or company or university or something, the dutiful posture and the devil's advocate stance both stem from the suspicion of authority. I I was I kind of wanted to ask you like how how do you think duty stems from suspicion of authority? Like that seems funny to me. Yeah, I think that probably ties into the whole safety seeking mechanism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything that you just read resonates does it perfectly really from my opinion yeah okay like and i think that duty discipline um there's a linear quality that feels controllable Mm -hmm. i think that ties into that um the whole perpetual seeking of safety Mm -hmm. meanwhile being suspicious of it all Skeptical. Skeptical. And suspicious, yes. For sure. Yeah. Do you feel like you remember being afraid as a child? Yes. Mm -hmm. Of the power over you? Yeah. I mean, I think um, as a child, it was basically just constant fear of Mm. everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that then um, evolved into being afraid of being both like searching for authority while simultaneously being uh pushing against it and being afraid of it like i i was fine with my teachers that those kinds Mm -hmm. of relationships were fine it was more there was it, it almost started off as more enigmatic and then that um became more embodied as i became more aware of the world and how the world worked so what do you so what do you mean by enigmatic and uh, like what do you mean it started off as enig- enigmatic? Uh, well, like as a child, I was terrified of ghosts. Uh-huh. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid to
to walk down the street by myself. Mm-hmm. I was afraid of all of these um, formless energies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things that I was perpetually being told didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then as I gotcha. got older and I saw the sort of embodied um, worldly versions of those mm. energies. Mm. So, so does that, because you're the one who introduced me to the whole union uh, podcast. So does that, what you just said, make the archetypal thing interesting to you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I feel like there are, like the energies exist and uh, are kind of carried, are carried throughout time and space, but become embodied in different um, iterations. Right. Uh, and, and then we can recognize them through these archetypes. Right. But like my personal experience, just to kind of clarify what I'm talking about, was moving from this place of being extremely fearful to my having a father that was very sick mm-hmm. who so we had a lot of doctors in our lives mm-hmm. and the doctors were telling my dad how to behave and it didn't work they mm-hmm. didn't fix him and yeah. so my so i became sort of obsessively anti doctor interesting that 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 form of authority like Mm -hmm. how dare you believe that you know enough to attempt to control the lifestyle of this person that meant so much to me so Mm -hmm. I'm going to spend all my resources attempting to debunk everything that you say moving forward right so that was just like a way to sort of laser focus in on an energy that obviously like is benevolent in most regards in most regards yeah but not always. but not, not all for sure yeah. but i was able to sort of glean the malevolence right and focus on that right in order to try to like reverse engineer that malevolence back to a place of neutrality mm. which is impossible sounds like it i don't even really know what that means <laughs> to reverse what does it mean to reverse engineer the malevolence back to a place of neutrality. Well, I think that, um, I mean, this might be going down a wormhole, but like this is kind of the way that my brain works, is I don't believe that, using this example, I don't believe that doctors are out to get you. Right. But I believe that there is a a sort of echo chamber or a a collective thought that can Mm -hmm. happen when doctors... um, are not rigorously questioning one another or themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that that is the malevolent energy yeah. that I would zone in on and, and attempt to reverse engineer, which then is, is kind of impossible because you're trying to unpack, you know, millennia of mm. Western medicine. Right. It's just not in my right. uh, wheelhouse. Right. Okay. I see. Okay. Because they are afraid to act on their own behalf, sixes have problems with follow-through. This is something she says over and over and over again. Thinking replaces doing. She says that so many times in this chapter. Thinking replaces doing because attention shifts from the impulse to act on a good idea 
to an intense questioning of that idea from the point of view of those who might disagree. And this is where I'm super interested. So from the point of view of those who might disagree, I think that is very specific to sixes. Like Mm -hmm. most people don't do that. Most people question, they, they have an idea and then they might question that idea but very rarely do they go after the point of view that's going to be against it, against it. It's almost like the opposite of confirmation, opposite of confirmation bias. Yeah. It's almost like you're blowing that open. Yeah. Which I'm sure is helpful sometimes, right? Um, yeah, it can be incredibly crazy making. Yeah. Especially right now, actually, because we live right now in a world where confirmation bias is like the name of the game it's so sexy it's <laughs> and uh and having complicated like dwelling in the gray areas is frowned upon socially it's frowned upon almost everywhere yeah and yeah. it's not really available in many places no and that yeah that has been i would be so curious to hear i yeah i I've been, I seek out those gray areas. I do too. Uh, it, it just is so important to me to be reminded of the fact that there are a lot of people out there that are really um, dancing with that gray area, even yes. though they're not the loudest voices. That I are... feel like literally, I mean, I'm, I'm suddenly getting emotional. I literally feel that that is the medicine for the polarity of our world. Yeah. And I think it's the most important thing. Yeah. I yeah, I was just listening to a talk with this guy, Tim Urban, that wrote a mm. book called I can't remember. Tim Urban. Yeah, but his whole hypothesis is basically or his book is basically like it's called like a remedy for society or something mm. like that. And it's all about I'm I can't remember the the specific vocabulary words that he uses, but it's all about staying in the gray area and mm. staying away from polarity. Oh, and the thing that he said that I loved so much is he said, um, in a liberal democracy, there should be no, there should be an allowance for bad ideas, but not bad people. Yes. So we should yes. be, we should We're basically only gonna be get going to, at ideas. You're never going to get to really great ideas without how lots of bad ideas. Yeah. Yeah, and so you should be allowed to Have say a really bad idea yes. without being living in fear that that will become that will reflect back on you as being a bad person. Exactly. I mean, obviously, like there are polar polarities and there are extremes, but but I think it's interesting because I guess in my enneagram learning, I've always been taught about sixes kind of being in the poles and that. The fear sends them to the poles, to the extremes, so that they will feel safe. And if this is true, what I just read about seeking intensely the point of view of those who might disagree with you on every decision, basically, that you're making, then maybe that's not so true of sixes. Maybe sixes are always battling with gray, possibly. Or what do you think about that? It. It does make me wonder about my own life experience versus the experience of others. Because I think I went from a place of seeking out 
safety in polarity Mm -hmm. and binary and being forced uncomfortably to relinquish feeling sure about anything I Mm. went you know I think going through parenthood Mm. is an opportunity for that and then having a small business and um you know trying to like build sustainable relationships with employees Mm -hmm. is another super uncomfortable birth canal for (laughs) (laughs) for exiting you know Uh self-assuredness I mean it's been a struggle in a lot of ways because of the fact that I almost never feel sure about anything so that makes it difficult to actually lead yeah and be in a leadership role right um I think when I am super freaked out when I was super freaked out I tended to want to hide from the gray area but now and and it's interesting because actually this therapist that I've told you about that I love so much who does kind of work in that um Jungian space she she and I have been talking about how much has come up for me during the pandemic that has felt so um scary and it has very little to do with COVID and it has far more to do about um to do with uh, social interactions and how alienated I feel like I've become from my tribe (laughs) or my people. Yes. um, And how often I don't feel able to work out difficult, uh, complex issues in public spaces with the people who are kind of my, my, uh, you know, panel of experts in, in my bubble, not, yeah. not the people that I'll listen to online or, or, um, that flavor of expert, but like, right. like just your friends that you trust experts. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I do feel like the numbers night has become kind of a salon in that regard where it just feels like it, it does feel like you can kind of say anything there and in the context, well, and not to go down a total wormhole, but like, I do think that people who are really fascinated with Enneagram, part of what they're fascinated with is learning how to communicate with people who are not like them by celebrating the differences between people instead of navel gazing and, you know, attempting to just unpack your own stuff. Yes. But yeah, like, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Thank you. That is beautiful. No, thank you. I really like the, yeah. I, that is I, so I beautiful. I'm so grateful for the, for your saying that and for your commitment to it. Yeah, I, I'm super grateful. But back to the, my my therapist and I have been working on the fact that that I'm I'm trying to tie all of this together because in my head it makes a lot of sense when it comes to sixhood. Okay. My biggest fear now, so if I, I there is fear there, there's fear at the root of basically like. Um, being excommunicated from my tribe Mm. because my tribe has become very polarized and my tribe has become very binary and I and and as opposed to tucking into that what I'm feeling is an actual bigger fear of the entire dissolution of the world the world yeah and so like my biggest fear my my kind of top-down fear is bigger than my tribe. It's like everybody's tribes in the entire world. And I'm afraid exactly that that we're going to 
implode. And so I'm d diving into the gray area as, as, as kind of a hope and a prayer that by holding space for the gray area, at some point, maybe the conversations will land there. Or shift. We'll shift more there. Yeah. Yes. Does that make sense? That was totally a, makes sense. I feel winded. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. The motive behind pervasive doubt is the childhood need to ward off interference from powerful people. Doubt leads to procrastination, which forestalls a resurgence of the fear of punishment that the sick child endured for acting against authority. Do you feel like you endured punishment from acting against authority? Not in a literal way. Uh -huh. I think, I mean, I, I, when I read about um, childhood sick stuff, for, yeah. me, for me it really... Wasn't like your parents or anything. No. Okay. Um, For some people, I think it must be. No, I I think a lot of my stuff is was really so tied into my dad's Sickness, health. Yeah. And and in that way, I I mean, and I don't fully understand why, except for that I came into the world like this somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because before my dad even really got sick, my interaction with doctors was where I acted out. I was very afraid of getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. But if I had to go to the doctor for any reason, I would turn into a complete freak. Yeah. And then um, we had family, we have a lot of family members who were doctors, and I was kind of perpetually questioning everything that they um, said mm -hmm. to the extent that it was uncomfortable for the family yeah and so for whatever reason that's the that is where I have always channeled that particular tension yes which then it, because it was family members and doctors it's not like I was getting in trouble you know right. people were just kind of wondering why I felt so strongly yeah 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 okay but it felt like the ultimate authority like these people want to mess with my body they want to mess yeah. with the bodies of the people around me yeah. And that's where I think a lot of that self-pres stuff comes from. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think because my dad was a doctor and the doctor community had to be kind of almost worshipped, then uh -huh. I had to behave as a child patient. Like I had to not cry, not be, I had to be perfect because you don't want to annoy the doctor. Right. So, and so I, I was, tucked all that shit in and now I'm a rager. It's <laughs> funny. Now I'm now I'm, a I'm rager. super skeptical, but I try to behave. But when I was young, I mean, it was both of my uncles on both my mom and dad's side of the family were these extremely high powered doctors. Right. And I, and when I would go to the doctor, just the pediatrician, I just, yeah, it really just became a whole different kid yeah it's fascinating because they take a mental yes but I love that I think that's so true attitude towards their own ideas sixes move towards success and fits and starts anxiety tends to peak as goals materialize which means that self-doubt and procrastination intensify 
as the six moves toward exposure and success. I think it's interesting how exposure and success are sort of put together there. Do you feel, she talks a lot in this chapter about anxiety rising as goals are being met. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I basically just... As things are starting to work out and go well, the tension, the anxiety rises. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel it often as imposter syndrome, which mm-hmm. I think everybody mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. feels. Um, but when, I think also just the, the closer you are to achieving a goal, often the more eyes are on you. And the world really wants you to feel confident and take a stand and have, a, you know, mission statement or, or some broad strokes way to package yourself or your goal. And I think when you do spend a lot of time in that gray area and questioning, the, the goals don't feel real and it also doesn't feel real mm. that anybody would ever want to like appreciate that goal. Like it just, <laughs> I, I can, I can, yeah, I, it just feels ridiculous so, that it would ever be a, a so finished I, product. I feel that you're, the way you're speaking about this is very tied up with the fact that you're an artist. Mm-hmm. So your feeling about goals not being real and all that kind of stuff is coming from your artist heart, I would say. My guess is that not everybody feels that way, right? Yeah. I mean, because I, I relate to what you're saying because it's like there's no... Ooh, the whole way we define all success and product, things being finished, mm-hmm. things being good... All those things are up totally always up in the air for me. So, yeah, there's so also it's interesting to put artists on top of six for, you know. Yeah, although I think that there's also just that idea that, like, if, if we're talking about goal setting, mm-hmm. which is kind of an elusive art form in and of itself, mm-hmm. but um, and I think that this is totally true for everybody, but maybe it's a little different for a six just because of the fear, but you're, you know, that idea that basically you're, you're attempting to recreate patterns in order to metabolize them. And so if your pattern is to be in either crisis or some, some level of being on a crisis spectrum, mm-hmm. which often if you're working towards a goal, is the hustle, is the information gathering, is Mm -hmm. the resource gathering, then if you're perceiving that you might be um, reaching the end of some sort of narrative arc that is connected to a specific goal, it would be anxiety producing because you wouldn't necessarily know what to do with the energy on the other end of the arc. Yes. Like you just want to recreate the energy that exists when you're climbing the mountain perpetually right. Right. Or, or being freaked out and being in scarcity mode. Yes. Like, like it's very hard to get out of scarcity mode. And I don't know if that's the case for everybody, but I feel like it probably is a persistent issue with sixes. Yeah, I think so. Resource gathering and right. all that. Yeah, I think 
I think we did do a podcast on scarcity for every number. Yeah. Way, way back. But Yeah, I kind of remember that. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting exercise. Because I have it too as a four, but just completely around. It's just different. It's just more about how I'm always seeing what's missing in every situation. Sixes gravitate toward underdog causes. They come to the four when the odds are against them. <laughs> That's funny. I literally, my, I, I feel like maybe I brought this up once in a salon, but my softball coach, mm-hmm. when I was 12, mm-hmm. he wouldn't let me swing unless I had two strikes against me. Okay. So it's it, it's just that. Like, it's kind of like the... So odds are against do you think me. he intuitively just knew that you had? I always batted better if if, <laughs> if you... I had two strikes against me. That's so crazy. And yeah. he just he knew that, and so that. Well, I mean, him. I think I just I I I showed him that. Over you and showed over him, again. That. and he was perceptive enough to pick up on the scrappy sort of that kind fuck of... you yeah. energy yeah. that comes when you're. When you think somebody's trying to take you out. Yeah. Fascinating. That's so great. That's such a good <laughs> image. That's so great. I love it. Devil's advocates are convinced that they can see through slick images and false presentations. Afraid of being disadvantaged by others. They are wary of being taken in by compliments or seduced by calculated praise. They are likely to become more vigilant if they are treated affectionately because when they trusted in the past, they were hurt when their guard went down. Their way of paying attention is to scan the environment for signs of anything harmful and to watch people closely for indications of what goes on in their minds. Sixes want to be forewarned and prepared. And this need makes them want to discover what lies beneath an image and what might be hidden behind a smile. So basically, you just don't trust people's motives, I guess, right? Yeah, I'm trying to think if that's like an across-the-board thing, but I definitely know that it comes up around compliments. So interesting. And enthusiasm. Okay. Okay. Which is so weird. I'm actually like really in this right now because I there's somebody in my life that I am around a lot who is a seven uh-huh. and is, or that that's me diagnosing, uh-huh. but is very um, enthusiastic <laughs> and kind of hyperbolic uh-huh. in her uh, flowery language. Yes. And, you don't trust that. Oh my god. Yeah. And it makes me feel like such an asshole because right. I'm, you know, the the presentation is this bubbly enthusiasm, and my reaction is, I I don't I feel like you're lying. Right. Right. Don't lie to me. <laughs> right. 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 Fascinating. Yeah. Like it it triggers such a deep distrust. That's so. And I'm and I'm I feel like I'm always kind of struggling to try to find this. Um, this middle ground that is more of a real place within which to take in this energy. Cause mm. I realize that I'm reacting because of who I am and mm. I'm not reacting because I'm actually being lied to. Right. But it's a very primal energetic reaction. 
Yes. So, yes, that's interesting. And it reminds me a little bit like fours don't trust people being too overtly happy. So, I, I respond inappropriately to people who are just overtly happy and have, you know, I don't, or cheerful. Uh-huh. I don't trust that. So, yeah. this is, I mean, it's similar, it's similar, but it's different. It's different because for you, it's around, I guess, enthusiasm, hyperbolic language. Yeah, it's that it, it feels inauthentic mm-hmm. in a way that then triggers all of my trust yeah. stuff. You just want them to speak it exactly Clearly. as it is yeah. in your mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sixes become alarmed or feel inwardly threatened. The habit of looking outward intensifies. And I thought that was a good description of dependent stance. Uh, like how how so one two six being dependent stance and the six as someone in the dependent stance when sixes become alarmed or feel inwardly threatened the habit of looking outward intensifies the more distress they feel within the more they tend to look without like perfect perfect dependent stance description um, with the result that sixes can easily mistake the source of their alarm. I thought that was kind of... Mm. She goes on to talk about a lot about that, about projection. She does a whole thing on phobic and counterphobic sixes. It's It seems this chapter in sixes is very like organized in these things. Like there's phobic and counterphobic sixes. There's three different kinds of responses to authority there's two styles about authority and three responses to authority so i don't know i just think that's a little a little unusual um and she you know again she's a six so she's seeing these things she's seeing these categories within six so the phobic looks furtive and frightened about life and the counterphobic is going going against um Let's see. She just, we're talking about a, there's a story in the book about a waitress who is always attributing motives to her customer and she's phobic. So she just never, she never asks or gets past being concerned about her customer's motives. And Helen says if she was a counterphobic, she would be more likely to engage the customers to talk, to check them out, to reduce her anxiety by getting them to like her. So, let's see. Family history. Sixes report that they were raised by authorities who were untrustworthy. But you don't feel that way, right? Um, I mean, my situation is somewhat unusual in that my part of my dad's illness was that he had a radical personality mm-hmm. transformation. Mm-hmm. It was a... Mm. So, he, he was my my parent my closest parent i mean my mom's awesome but my dad i was always more um attached to my dad Mm -hmm. and then he had this brain tumor turned into many 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 surgeries he then turned into an entirely different person who was actually extremely untrustworthy and scary and all those things okay so that was a part of my life that being said i feel like some of this stuff came up before that yeah um arose right okay in the form of like hyper skepticism of of the doctors in my life but 
yeah, I don't know. Okay. Very occasionally, a six reports that the family lived with a secret that had to be kept quiet. I think that's kind of interesting. They say they had to watch others carefully because they were treated erratically. That if they did not sense the threat beforehand, they could be taken unaware. Sixes learned to hesitate, to check out danger signals, to figure out the authority's position before they made a move themselves. Afraid of being hurt or embarrassed, young sixes had to know what others intended to do before they could take a position themselves. All of this reminds me of like child of alcoholic stuff, uh-huh. right? That overvigilance. Yeah, which which when I've kind of dug in mm-hmm. around just my weird situation, that I've had a lot of people draw similar conclusions that that's it, that I had a similar experience. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't alcohol. Right. Right. So do you feel like you had to be vigilant around your dad's new kind of changed personality? Extremely. Yeah. Okay. And there was often, I mean, it's just interesting to kind of hear that because there was part of it, not to get too in the weeds again, but like part of it was that my dad was, was one. And I think this is where it's very similar to child of alcoholic. Uh, he was one way when he was with us and then he was a different way when mm-hmm. he was in the world. And so the world didn't understand at all what our family was experiencing. So in that's fact, kind of was, a secret right yes, there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there was like uh, aggressive, how do I, I don't know how to describe it. It doesn't really matter, but the, we really had to keep it under wraps because people felt very strongly about him because before he got sick, he was just the... You know, he was hilarious, he Mm -hmm. was an artist, he had a ton of friends, and everybody wanted to hold on to that version of him, and we weren't, we were no longer getting that, we were getting the exact opposite, and so people were kind of mad at us if we ever said anything like, this is hard. Yeah. Or, he's really mean. Right. You know, and so you couldn't talk about it. Couldn't say it. Wow. Wow. So then she goes on to talk about the two authority styles, the mistrustful of authority figures. Um, well, just sixes in, in general are mistrustful of authority figures, but one is uh, looking for dependency on them, to take care of them, to keep them safe. And the second style is to be rebellious against them, to see who is trying to take advantage of weakness. There's another people's. Um, so... There's that. I don't know if, like, do you feel like you're in one or the other? Do you feel like there you have both? or? I feel like I have both. Yeah. It makes sense that it would kind of, kind of waffle around. Yeah, because being dependent, I'm, I, I, I do kind of realize that I have this sort of knight in shining armor um, fetish. Ha. Huh. That has never, it has only ever disappointed me. It's been crushing. <laughs> Crushing I think, fetish. I think that is uh, it's been crushing. It's a crushing fetish for us all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but mine comes in the form of the idea that there is somebody out there <laughs> that, that can is save going, you. That is going to answer all the questions. Resoundingly answer all of the questions. A six is not in armor. Might be a little different than, yeah. than mine. Definitely looks a little like you know, like a Peter Atia type. <laughs> character like Andrew Huberman 
That's so good. I love that. I love that. That's so good. It's great. So sweeping you off your feet is someone who has all the answers to everything that you're curious about and worries you. But and, like in a soft, and, and loving a, way. In a soft, loving way, but very clear, very clear. and very no precise. Yep. <laughs> Willing to look at things from both sides, non-dogmatic. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's so good. So is, I mean, would you say Huberman is up there for you? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he's great. Yeah, I mean, I he I really great. appreciate his approach and what he's bringing to the world. I agree. That that didn't exist, you know, when we were young. That God do- doctors were gods, right? And you and I feel like uh, popping that bubble and. Giving empowering people to know more about what's going on with their bodies is huge. It's a huge deal. It's such a huge deal. I'm so grateful for it too, for him too. Because sixes felt powerless as children, they had trouble taking action as adults. Fearful of being disadvantaged by powerful people, they tend to overvalue those who take action. I thought that was kind of interesting. They overvalue people who take action, prosper, and move ahead. So that's kind, of, that's kind of wild, right? Do, do you relate to that at all? Like, look, seeing other people who are maybe more decisive or who seem more successful to you or whatever and kind of maybe... I think it's interesting that she uses the word overvalue, that you overvalue that. Yeah, I don't know how much... I, I mean, I think that there is sort of like a sexy quality to... Mm-hmm. To um, doers. Being able to feel assured in one's uh decision enough to take action like i i covet that yeah in some ways Mm -hmm. um i don't know if i overvalue it but i definitely am fascinated by it because i it's one of those things that i just can't wrap my brain around yeah yeah decisiveness yeah yeah talking about looking at people's intentions and trying to read what's going on the unusual preciseness of attention can develop around the need to know the worst this precision is often used in a biased way however to discover the negative qualities of powerful people and to look for the redeeming qualities of underdogs so that's interesting (laughs) so she's basically saying i mean I i guess i don't have to repeat it but that's so interesting that Basically, you're easier on underdogs, and you're looking for the worst in people that you deem more powerful. That is true. Yeah. 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 That is a way in which a six is using confirmation bias to find the negative and powerful people and find the positive in underdogs. Yeah, for sure. I think that um, I definitely have a... Um, I have a, a belief system that kind of aligns success with inauthenticity <laughs> because, uh. and I don't know if I don't, I, I feel like success often comes with, um, having a tool belt that, that involves a lot of binary tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I distrust that. I also, you know, coming in the coming up in this world being married to a musician and Mm -hmm. kind of seeing the ugly underbelly of how the music industry works and that like success has almost nothing to do with talent 
very rarely does is it I mean often it's there's talent along with a whole host of really unseemly qualities right that uh, that allows somebody to propel themselves into a place that other people would deem successful right and and then I'm and then I'm surrounded by insane talent and a lot of those people simultaneously can't get a, get a gig or they right. can't get any enough attention to actually make a living, you know. Right. Matt's kind of somewhere in the that funny gray area, mm-hmm. but like, and then in my industry also, yeah. similarly, I see a connection with between success and disingenuousness mm-hmm. and exploitation and selfishness and narcissism, and right. so it is hard for me to get out of that place where when I see somebody that's really successful, making assumptions that they are they've got their probably yeah they've probably traits. like done a lot of damage <laughs> right in their life well the system the success system that we have is a system that requires um you know, i don't know if it requires inauthenticity maybe but it requires kind of like this profound belief in your own bullshit and uh, like un like unquestioning propulsion and belief in yourself and everything you're saying and doing and willingness to just go after it and go self-promote in every way and like and d- often like dumb things down so that and dumb things be, down so yeah. that people can swallow it giving kind of people what they want instead of finding as an artist what it is you you want to say yeah and so yeah, I mean, as an artist, I like I I just I miss I distrust it too, but I'm also like trying to not mm, let my feelings around that, which often seem to revolve around some concept of purity, uh, get in the way of my actual work ethic or my propul- my my own movement forward. Right. Right. Yeah, as well as like being able to see through to the intent the actual work or intention of somebody that you don't know at all right. that is doing incredible work out in the world and who mm-hmm. might be um have might might have arrived there with a great deal of integrity. But right. I yeah, so yeah. I, I kind of am working against that um tendency to it is kind of wanting wanting to maybe um, knock people off of their pedestal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Three responses to authority. Idealizing, following a strong protector, a guru, a mentor. She puts my Fuhrer under there. Mm-hmm. Um, two, joining a like-minded group and kind of an us-against-them mentality. And three, rebellion, um, questioning authority all the time. And so my guess is, again, this is probably a fluid, fluid situation where a six could be all three, could approach authority in all three ways. Yeah, I, I have a very distinct memory of going to a, um, and now I'm going to blank on the type of yoga type of oh kundalini mm. going to a kundalini yoga class mm-hmm. and 
being so enraptured by the idea of literally just making that my entire life <laughs> and getting yeah getting the white clothing and getting the turban and getting the sheep's uh, the the lamb's wool the lamb's wool rug thing whatever mm-hmm. um and having that be a moment <laughs> where i really had to check my relationship to authority because I was like oh yeah I'm like I am 100% waiting for a cult (laughs) Matt and I watched a documentary that documentary about um is it Nexius or some some cult there was some Netflix documentary Mm -hmm. about this cult and it was so funny because Matt was just like what's wrong with these people how could they be so stupid? And I literally was like, that is me. And that is me. And that is me. I would, I would have been all in hook, line, and sicker. Because it's either that or it's the opposite option. Yeah. Or I'm yeah. like, uh-uh. No. Yeah. I'm finding all the ways to Which is why I think I am so vigilant. Because I, yeah. I see that I could very easily just check out and follow. Follow. Yeah. So she talks about in the rebel style... There's a, there's a strength to be gained by putting themselves up against the wall. So that's kind of a, a, a little bit like your two strikes thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because the situation forces them to act. Consequently, sixes are often attracted to dangerous or highly competitive sports because the situation demands immediate response. Doing has to replace thinking in a crisis of action. And goes on to, so here's a sixes story. I was afraid of my father, and to lessen my terror of him, I'd provoke him, make him do his worst, so that he would look bad, and so that I, it would be, that would be over, and I would feel safe for a while. I can't remember a time when I felt that authority was on my side. My school memories are of cutting class, signing my own report cards, and leading a secret life where I could do as I pleased. I never thought that the system was fair, so in my 20s and 30s, I had no desire to enter the rat race and have to compete for status that I saw as phony and did not respect. Instead, I took up racing cars for a living. I got into it when I was young, fell in love with it, actually. There's nothing in the world like coming out of a straightaway, six cars crowded into a corner, all inches apart at 170 miles an hour. You could die right there. It was great to feel that edge in my body, that my life was in my hands. It seemed hugely alive to get that close to death. I felt no fear around the races or at certain other times when I went against the law. I used to get afraid when things got quiet. So I kind of wanted to read that story mainly because I think it's not something we hear very often about sixes. And I think it's important to understand that there are counterphobic sixes out there that are constantly putting themselves against this wall. And we don't, we might think they're like an eight or something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So that's where that discernment really has to come in about what's underneath the reason you're putting your back against a wall. Is it because, you know, is it because you're trying to quell this fear? Or is it because an eight would be doing it to be in control, be the boss, you know, to be in charge? Um, 
I mean, I, I think all of that gets a little slippery because I think at the end of the day, we could pick all of our motives up, apart and get back to kind of, you know, that we're all, you know, we're all existentially afraid of, you know, death. Death. So, <laughs> so I think we're all kind of running from that in our nine ways. But, but I think that's an important story to read. It, she tells another story of a detect, a guy who was in a gang and then became a detective. And so he went from being the gang member to being the person who prosecuted the gang members. I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it is difficult to praise sixes. They exert great efforts to have an underdog position acknowledged, but have trouble accepting recognition when it has been earned. Positive attention can spark doubtful thinking. This is a setup, or, a, or what more do they expect? is what a six is thinking. They are quick to spot ineptitude or power plays on the part of leaders and believe that they will come under the same severe scrutiny if they are placed in a high visibility role. Hmm. I mean, to me, like, so they're quick to spot the ineptitude because that you've already figured out that if you're ever in that place, that someone's going to be quick to spot yours, mm-hmm. which makes me think about sevens who are um, not... Uh, who are letting everyone kind of do what they want so that everyone will let them do what they want. But I mean, it's totally different, but it's just, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's the, it's the, it's this like, what do I need from everybody? And it's making sure you're, you're, you're doing what, what you need to get get. what you want to get. Yeah. Yeah. On the high side, the same behaviors that hinder a six. Suspicion, procrastination, and the search for hidden motives can become useful tools. Suspicion of authority can evolve into constructive critique. Procrastination can lead to allowing time for the reformulation and reevaluation of ideas. Imagining the worst can become believable enough to replace reality in a paranoid episode. But that same powerful imagination can generate original solutions. I think that's super important. The low side can be excessively cautious, especially in winning situations, exhibiting procrastination and a search for hidden motives in the action of others. Okay, so that kind of, sorry, but that kind of sums up the whole authority piece in the chapter, which is considerable. Uh So uh, on page 248, she talks about the habit of assuming worst-case outcomes, which I wrote out in the margin, is also imagination and creativity. And I, I like, I really like thinking about all this, that sixes are both blessed and cursed by a powerful imagination. Um, I think that's also something we don't talk about so much with sixes because, yes, you are always imagining worst-case scenarios, but the possibility is there to be imagining best case scenarios Mm -hmm. and like the powers, the power and the breadth of of that is there. It's just that sixes don't realize that they're kind of only utilizing their imagination and creativity to to one side. Yeah. I think that's why the Jungian stuff has been so powerful for me Mm. because I was able to, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am, realizing this somewhat in retrospect after working with my therapist for a, a a long enough time to have her reflect back to me like 
this is a really powerful modality for you. It's not that powerful for everybody. Exactly. Because of, I mean, if, if I take that engine that's sort of firing pistons in my brain all of the time and actually it's, it's not even so much like imagining the best case scenario. It's literally dropping in and giving, like allowing whatever's going on inside of me to manifest into these sort of embodied entities that I can have dialogue with and witness. So can you talk more about that? What do you mean? What does that mean to dialogue with entities that you can... like? Well, it's sort of like... I know we've talked about internal family systems, mm-hmm. so I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, it mm-hmm. it well, I mean, I can just sort of say what like a session is like with her. Okay, where we'll be chatting, and then something will come up that obviously triggers some strong emotion, mm-hmm. and she'll stop me, and then she'll walk me through a process where I get out of my head and into my body. And again, I have no idea if this is like a standard procedure or if this is just her thing. Mm-hmm. But um, but then she'll ask questions about the feeling in a way that isolates the feeling from the narrative that was going on in my head and allows it to become a character that I can lay eyes on which I'm not actually laying eyes on it I'm like right. but I, my eyes are closed and it's happening in my imagination mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I can take the feeling and I can embody it I it, it becomes manifest like it becomes a character okay for example at, well I'll just give it an example that one time there was a hedgehog or there was a porcupine that was living in my chest and she talked me through the, this process of what happens if the porcupine climbs out of my chest and sits in a chair next to me. And when that happened, the porcupine became a, an adorable little hedgehog Aww. that wanted to climb into my hand. And at that point, then I was able to see that the, the porcupine was actually a hedgehog that was able to turn into a porcupine when it felt like it had a duty to Ah. do when it needed to be vigilant and keep everything away and protect my heart Mm -hmm. but that actually it was a sweet cute adorable little hedgehog that just wanted to be loved and was just trying to be helpful right so as opposed to like torturing myself about how closed my heart can feel and how I can shut down around just wanting to be loving I was able to kind of walk through this process and see this sweet little hedgehog that mm. thought it was working really hard to, to protect me. And so then you can have a conversation. I'm okay. I don't need, you know, you don't need to become a porcupine. I can deal with this. I'm a grown up now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind oh, of thing. I love that. I love that. Yeah. That's so helpful. Yeah. So that's like IFS kind of what, or that's my watered down version of what IFS can look like. Okay. But I think the creativity that's always going on in my head, the energy that is always going into sort of imagining worst case scenarios and figuring out how to proactively problem solve those things, it basically the energy is already there. So I just shift the energy into this other um, process and yeah. it's right there. Amazing. 
This is a good advertisement for I want to call her immediately. <laughs> I love her. I love her so much. So I've given her number out to my daughter and my friend. Uh, so I hope they take me take they I hope they reach out. The phobic six reaction to fearful imaginings is easier to understand than the counterphobic six position. The phobic type imagines danger or thinks that danger may be near and sensibly runs away. The counterphobic reaction would be to seek out the danger. The counterphobic types who seek out the dangerous option look like eights in the sense that they can be very aggressive in what they perceive to be an up-against-the-wall situation where they have to face a threat. Counterphobics say that they have to move toward what they fear or else they find themselves imagining the issue over and over and over again. So in a way, it's like they're just getting it over with, which is fascinating. Yeah. Do you ever, do you relate to that where you just go jump into it just to get it, just to stop imagining all the, uh, stop obsessing? I really feel like both of those things are true for me. Okay. I definitely have to be pushed to run towards something but then when I do it is pretty aggressive cool (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I wish it was a little less aggressive like I wish there was more balance there yeah because it does sort of feel like one or the other either I'm totally avoiding something or I am kind of coming at it as though I'm as though I have to fight when right. you don't always have to fight, you know. Right, right. So I guess that's an example where you could run toward something with your hedgehog instead of your porcupine. Right. Yeah. 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 I totally. like that. That's so helpful. <laughs> yeah, it is. I know. Those little characters are, have been very helpful for me. Yes. So she, talk, she talks about a, a Vietnam vet who was afraid of the dark. I remember in Vietnam when I wrote home to my girl after about a month of combat, I told her that the thing that frightened me the most was the dark at night when they'd send me out. I was simply afraid of the dark. If somebody had jumped out and started shooting, I would have felt better. My imagination just went bananas. I saw monsters. I saw people who were not there. And the more I saw them, the more I would look for them until I'd be crouching in firing position without being able to know if I was really being watched or not. So I think that's kind of reminds me of what you were saying when you were a little girl and you were afraid of all these, what did you say, enigmatic things. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that, that there's this Vietnam guy in combat who's more afraid of the dark than someone shooting him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that's act, like the action is less scary than mm-hmm. the... Waiting. The waiting, yeah. Yeah, and the imaginings. Yes. And then another story of, um, I think, it actually, it's the same person. So the war brought my paranoia into the foreground. I wasn't sure before I went in that I was afraid underneath. I didn't chicken out under fire, and I assumed that everybody else felt more or less the same as myself. But when I came back, I started getting anxiety attacks, and I could not take a shower without bringing my knife with me into the stall. The water noise made it so that I couldn't hear the sounds in the house. And I would be there with my face full of soap and I would hear things. I would think there was someone in the bathroom and I'd pull open the stall door and look out and I'd even soaking wet gotten out of the shower and gone to the front door to look out. 
There was nothing specific that I was afraid of. No known enemies and the doors were locked, but sometimes I had to have the knife in there with me for protection. Um, they are addicted to imagining possible outcomes because it seems like a legitimate source of correct information. Imagination is part of a six's attentional defense. To give it up would be to let one's guard down to face life unprepared. So it's almost like it, I'm feeling right now like imagination is to a six is almost like the critical voice of a one, hmm. you know? Yeah. Or I should just say the imagining worst case things for a six is like the critical voice of a one and you kind of believe in it and you yeah. believe in its efficacy and for your life. And to put it down would to, to kind of feel really wrong yeah. and scary and like well, yeah. ir- irresponsible mm-hmm. practically. Um, so projection. This is really big for me. I feel I just have felt this with the sixes in my life. Um, the blind spot in the way a six pays attention is that a point of view must have first appeared in the six's mind in order to warrant her looking for supportive evidence and clues. For, for example, if a six believes that John likes her, then she will look for signs in John's self-presentation that this is so. So that's back to confirmation bias. John might recognize that he is being projected upon because the six may say that he is thinking something that he is not. <laughs> she could say his affectionate feelings are appreciated when in fact he is not feeling affectionate. Or she could say that he is radiating anger when he is actually totally fine. Um, and then she tells a story of a person who's married for 15 years and realized that she was always most worried that her husband was having an affair when she was actually feeling like she might want to have one. So, or she was just attracted to somebody. And so she started worrying about her husband instead of herself. So she said, then, you know, after 15 years of marriage, I'm quite clear that when I'm thinking I'm being left, that I may have eyes for someone else or something like that. So... My experience with sixes is very much this, is that they, I feel their projection and I feel there is no way that I can penetrate it or tell them otherwise. And so sometimes in relationship with sixes, it's almost like you can't say, well, I, I am actually, I was, I was not feeling that way or I don't feel that way or, you know, it's like they just won't take your, you at your word. Yeah, it's where that skepticism mm-hmm. can be uh, very unhelpful. Right. And, and be more, yeah, if, if you're more dogmatically attached to your concept of reality, then, then yeah, you're not going to trust anything that anybody tells you because you're convinced that they're going to tell you that in order to get you off their back or you know, get something from you or, and, and I, I don't even think it's necessarily or get just something from you, but like, there's just that quality of like, well, no, of course I'm right about this thing that I'm yeah. projecting onto somebody else. Right. So, I mean, I have, I have a six friend who is convinced that I don't, 
think his cooking is good and that I don't and I can never go over to his house ever again because he's not going to invite me because he's convinced that I that I pushed my food around on my plate when I came one time and that I didn't like his cooking and there's no way for me to convince him that that's not true and so in this case it's like he wants to believe that and not believe me but but that doesn't get him anything him anything well, except, except you don't know what it might be getting him in his in the story about his life yeah i don't know but because there might be some that really I mean, affects relationship I yeah mean, yeah yeah and that's something that i actually feel like i've gotten better about i feel like that was a much more intense thing when i was younger mm-hmm. and now i i work really hard to try to take people at their word especially when it's around a compliment mm-hmm. um but i have always been drawn to people who are direct yes because because it's a it's a there's a relaxing there's a letting go around this vigilant attempt to translate the language that I feel like I'm being fed versus the reality that I feel like I feel. Mm-hmm. So so language sometimes feels like a curtain that you have to get behind. Uh-huh. And when, when I know that people have an easy way of being direct or authentic, then it's like I can just... You're more able to trust it. and let go yeah. of that. But yeah. in general, I just kind of try to... I do try to do that mm-hmm. more often, just accept what people say and try to believe them but it's hard that is hard for me do you feel like you project like do you do you ever catch yourself projecting something on the mat or yeah. projecting something on your kids or yeah I that's actually lot. something that you feel yeah yes I, I mean I, I I I do think I do a lot of projecting I don't know how much it's always Something that I'm feeling as directly as like that example. That, that wife that wanted to cheat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, it's more, again, it's a vigilance of what's the worst case scenario that could happen. It would be if this person was actually feeling this way. So I'm going to look for the confirmation bias around signs that they are actually feeling that way. And then I'm potentially going to confront them with that which might exacerbate that feeling or make it, you know, actually manifest when it right. didn't exist previously. Right. Um, but it, it, I, I've heard you talk before about chaining. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it feels like that when I first heard that term, mm-hmm. it, it felt so... Um, There's a really good definition of chaining in this chapter. For six, a doubt attack can call an entire structure of belief into question. One setback in a project, one argument in a relationship, can wipe out months of gradually built trust. It's as if the foundation of a well-built structure gets called into question and has to be rebuilt again if the roof is found to have a leak. There is a need to repeatedly reaffirm commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Chaining. Yeah, and I like where it comes into play with kind of the learning to not do that. I have found that there's something that is uniquely heartbreaking when my premonition, like calling it, sometimes it feels like a premonition, sometimes mm-hmm. it might be projection, 
Hmm. Fine line. It's hard to know. It's hard to figure that's, out how to trust your gut when probably, you are perpetually projecting. Yeah. So that's so tricky because it could be premonition, could be linked to imagination, and projection could be linked to worst case scenario thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, I think it's discernment around that. And I guess you could say back to the union stuff mm-hmm. that that's like your. Your light and your shadow mm-hmm. all wrapped together and like trying to integrate those for the balance, which is talking to the head jaw, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, or just talking to whatever characters are not attached to a specific narrative outside of your experience. Yeah. And then because sometimes when the when it turns out to be a premonition. Yeah, because I bet sometimes you really have them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And when it turns out to be a premonition, it is heartbreaking. Like, it is, it is the, like, some of the biggest grief I have felt has been around being right. Yeah. When I really didn't want to be right. Because then I, then the next time I f- do that thing where I yeah. potentially have a worst case scenario that I start to fixate on it's harder for me to pull back away from it and not believe it right right so like that story we told a long time ago the six who went camping and could make the list that all these things that the bear has never come to get her when it when your premonition becomes true then that list making doesn't work anymore yeah because it came true yeah yeah I um so so procrastination, she talks about like a thesis that took years because debilitating shifts of attention seem like legitimate data gathering. Each authority's point of view has to be taken seriously. That means that sixes wind up questioning their own position more than they defend it, which guarantees slow progress. Paradoxically, if the thesis were to be suddenly assured of success, with all legitimate objections honestly dismissed, its author might experience more acute performance anxiety than when the project was in doubt. Success and exposure bring on fears of being victimized by unprovoked attack. These fears are mitigated and softened by moving slowly and with doubt, which can be interpreted by others as laziness and ineptitude. <laughs> That is so crazily accurate. Wow. Yeah. I, I think the part about like every single authority's point of view has to be taken seriously. And now with the internet, yeah. holy cow, that's just never going to, that's never going to end. Yeah. Yes. Which though I think has been a kind of a beautiful, um, it's like I needed to achieve critical mass in order to see through to the fact that like we're all creating our own reality in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And there, the idea of there being a truth is just a fallacy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that it's a good idea to, to be vigilant to a certain extent and to seek out opposing ideas with good actors and that is available in ways that I don't think it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. And then you have to draw some boundaries around how many voices you let in. 
Yeah, but it's really like, oh, right. I can see why in a, in a way that it's allowed me to, 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 um, bequeath the benefit of the doubt to people who are in their echo chambers, because I can see how easy it would be to just construct a really solid reality that never questions itself because there's it's just so easy to do and if you're yeah. not inviting in right. these it's efficient <laughs> it's efficient and it's just like yeah i mean if you're not interested in inviting in the opposing viewpoints then you can exist in a really comfortable bubble mm. and so i was going to say like aggressive numbers in general just kind of you know are, are kind of the opposite of what you're talking about and threes go to six and health. And so that's why that's why it's healthy for a three because of what you're talking about. Because then they're able to invite these other opposing points of view in and get a more nuanced view of themselves and their identity and all of that. And it's just more, it balances out that kind of, drive to efficiency and yeah, yeah and, and yeah. also just single-minded um concept of who they are mm-hmm. you know um so it's really beneficial like six energy is so beneficial for three in that way so fear of success it and he he talks he tells a story of somebody who just reached all the success and then just left it behind and kind of regretted it later but but also said that even though he regretted it, he's, he didn't allow a lot of things in that might have come his way if he had stayed with the success and stayed open to people wanting him to benefit from that. He just moved on. But then he said, you know, all these other things opened up from him just walking away from it. So he, he has kind of this amazing point of view about it. But But do you feel, I mean, here you are with this business that you've created... And I know, like, I texted you the other day. I said, you're going to be in the history books. And I believe that. I truly believe that. I know I'm giving you probably what feels to you a hyperbolic compliment. But in my <laughs> mind, I you will be taught in universities. Like, what you have done will be taught. You have completely brought embroidery into the 21st century in a completely redefined way. So, so here you are with this, this successful, incredible thing that you've created and talking about fear of success. Like, do you have anything you want to, that you want to say or that you, that you relate to? Well, I could tell you what was going on in my head when you said that, which is basically just like taking everything that you said and deflecting it Mm -hmm. to like my, I... I'm, I'm kind of constantly going, but it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. And and to a certain extent in my business, I, that there's a, there's a, some, there's a lot of truth there. We are a, a group that works together. And mm-hmm. so anytime any I like I feel like I could hear that if somebody was saying Fort Lonesome, you know, mm-hmm. has done that. Um, I do attempt to move towards accepting some of that just in order to give myself the energy that I need to stay with it. Yeah. For the sake of the people that work for me. 
really actually is like my hearing you talk about a guy that had success and then walked away from it. Like every single day, that is what I fantasize about. Okay. And I simultaneously feel like that would be doing a disservice to the people who have put so much energy into this with me. Mm-hmm. And also maybe that like, I am also always trying to figure out if, if me getting out of the way would be the greatest service I could do to the people who work for me. So it, that it's like, what? I mean, how, how could that be true? I don't know, but that, but I, it is, it's really interesting to hear so much about the fear of success and all of this, because Mm -hmm. I haven't thought of it as fear, but, but I can reframe some of the, the sort of existential angst that I have felt and realize that there is probably a lot of fear there that I, that, that uh, to me, I, it feels more just like exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's tiring to be so freaked out all the time and having eyes on you like that is very freaky and very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I do have a, a knee jerk reaction that is like, drop it and run as far away as you possibly can. I mean, I spend so much time fantasizing about hiking up into the mountains and never, ever, ever coming back again. Wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but it's the it's the people who work with me that, let I, that where I'm like, okay, I can show up for them. So that's so kind can... of a good six tool because yeah. it, it's a, using your loyalty piece mm-hmm. to hang on to to stay with your success built yeah Yeah. and actually like be able to talk about it and yeah you know have yeah and it seems like to me that like everything that goes wrong all along the way you'd probably be quick to take responsibility for but everything that goes right along the way you would be quick to say that's not me and which is maybe the opposite for a three. Like a three would be quick to take the successes and be quick to defer the, the failures to other, other, other people or other situations, which again is why I think six is good medicine for a three. But mm-hmm. that's beside the point. But um, do you ever ca- I mean, do you catch yourself doing that? I mean, do you realize that you're quick to take the... Blame the blame, but not the the credit. Credit, yeah. I mean, it's a really weird place to be as a boss of a creative business Mm -hmm. because I mean, really, (laughs) it's funny. I don't know if I'm doing gymnastics in my head or if it's reality. Who knows? But like, I genuinely believe that I should be shining a light as brightly as possible on everybody else and not me, unless there is a moment in which it feels extraordinarily important. But, be, but be, because there are all of these benefits that I get from being the boss, mm-hmm. people want to look at me. They want it to be, they want to give me credit. Yeah. It's a, it's a cleaner narrative. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants the like solo female entrepreneur artist. Like it, it is a, it, it's, it's the low-hanging fruit that people can just grab onto and throw out all the right words and wrap it up neatly. And mm-hmm. so I've actually had to work really hard, relentlessly, to push against that. 
Mm-hmm. And it feels really important to me to do that. Like I, I would feel awful. I feel awful when somebody thinks that it's me doing Fort Lonesome. That, for, that Fort Lonesome is you. Yeah. It yeah. feels like a betrayal of my team, the people who have worked so hard with me to make this thing happen. Right. So I catch myself sometimes, but I also feel like, why? Why would I? I get the credit anyway, if I'm lazy. I see what you're saying. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it's and it's hard to, it is also hard as an artist to be as honest as possible mm-hmm. about how little is you. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. So it feels like good work. Yes, for sure. Like I, I, I feel all the time that I'm trying to be really, um, give credit where someone has helped me, someone has taught me, someone has, you know, and the, and the other day and not the other day, but a while back, I realized that I wasn't, I guess, tagging my electrical, um, lighting designer person. And it was just a, it was just a, I just messed up. Like I'm, I'm so grateful to her. I thought I, I think I maybe thought I was doing it, but I wasn't doing it. And I actually just went to her and said I was so sorry and went back and retroactively tagged her. But that doesn't make a difference, you know. So nobody looks back at stuff. But I anyway, I caught myself not being that way, and I was really mortified uh-huh. in myself because it is such a Especially, I mean, I think back when I was a painter by myself and it was not so much that way, but now it's like so many people Uh helped me, taught me to weld, continue to teach me to weld, you know, it's a sidebar. (laughs) It's fear of success. If success begins to materialize, the massive resistance is removed and real paranoia can set in. Whom do I trust now that I'm on top? Where is trouble likely to creep in? Authoritarian sixes can only believe that once they get on stage that others will see them as oppressive and doubt their good intentions. The suspiciousness of the good intentions of others increases as pleasurable goals materialize and the old habits of procrastination and self-doubt return in force when desires are aroused. And yeah, and all of this again ties in for me with actually how critically important it has been to be on a team yeah and to work collaboratively yes because it it works against all of that that's great so that's really good help for other sixes who are listening sixes are clever about finding ways to circumvent success the most common reports are that they lose interest they throw the wind to someone who seems to need it more <laughs> suddenly recognize a fatal flaw in the whole procedure, get sick, or suddenly get re-energized about a previously discarded task. There's an endless list of creative solutions to delay facing the conflict surrounding success, including making genuinely creative contributions from the devil's advocate position and becoming successful while still feeling like a failure. One of the hardest psychological tasks that sixes face is to first achieve a modest degree of visible success and then to learn how to feel safe with with what they've achieved. I think that's really good. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, like having other people that you feel like you can align your success with and being able to 
when you don't feel able to show up for whatever, whatever approval or, you know, authority or whatever stage you're being asked to step up on, if you can do it with other people and simultaneously, you know, deflect the light from yourself, uh-huh. then you can, it, 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 yeah, the loyalty does kick in mm-hmm. and the idea of doing it for the sake of the team is stronger yeah. than running away. That's so good. That's so good. This is one last way in which sixes avoid recognizing successes by placing superhuman requirements on themselves. So intimate relationships, sixes often have long-term marriages, which is kind of interesting, but they also have kind of this ongoing contingency concept, like that they'll stay until the kids leave or um, we'll see, you know, what happens when um, my kid graduates, we'll see if we have a relationship, you know, so, which is kind of almost just like a, uh, I mean, it doesn't necessarily change anything. It's just this contingency plan that allows you to stay, fo- stay in. For the time being. Yeah. 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 It's the skeptics approach to yeah. long-term anything. Yeah. That's so funny. So, devil's advocates can accept happiness and sexual pleasure more easily when the couple is seen as being in collusion against a threatening world. Oh, funny. Yeah, I think that's really... I can think of... I can can see that. Um, Yeah, I can... I mean, it's funny. Yeah, I can kind of see that also. I mm -hmm. think Matt and I both being in these creative... Feels, collusion. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like it, it. There is a a sense of us against the world that it's not as intense as it used to be, but it it's under there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And trust is a key issue. The partner is seen as trustworthy because the six knows what help to give, and because the six can give the partner pleasure. There's no particular manipulation in a six is giving. A six does not give in order to get something back. The goal of affecting the partner is to feel safe. And sixes can tolerate extremes in neurotic behavior from the partner without having to make the partner change. I think that is so fascinating. A different reaction will begin to surface when sixes realize that they can be affected by the partner. It makes sixes angry to know that they can be hurt. That, the, that what their partner does can matter terribly, and that when their pleasures are aroused, that the partner has control over the satisfaction of these desires. There's an impulse to turn the pleasure off, to cave into fears of abandonment, to leave the partnership, or to split head, heart, and belly into different relationships. I don't even know what that means. That's fascinating. Because head, heart, and belly are the three triads, right? So Hmm. what does it mean to split these energies into different relationships? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That that last part actually didn't resonate for me just in terms of the idea of allowing neurotic behavior. Okay. (laughs) That is, I... Can tolerate extremes in neurotic behavior. that's definitely not true for me I I, 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 yeah I I'm hypersensitive to neurotic behavior I mean yeah 
in terms of wanting it to stop and wanting to control that type of behavior. I'm not one to just kind of let it go and bear right. witness without right. <laughs> commenting on it. Right, right, trying right. To, like change it. Right. Because it feels scary. Yeah. Right, right. That, that's what I would think. But so that's why I read it. I was like, wow, that's really. Yeah. Huh. What was, what has helped me most in believing that I'm doing a good job is what I call minimal intelligent opposition. I like this. That means that compliments have to be salted with constructive suggestions for improvement hmm. so that I can really believe the integrity of what someone has to say. Minimal intelligent opposition. That's hilarious. Salted with constructive suggestions. Eating the compliment with a little constructive criticism. Yeah, well, th- I mean, I basically told my therapist that I didn't want her to tell me everything was going to be okay. <laughs> Because you just don't ever believe that everything's going to be okay. Well, and how does she know? Yeah. So that, that. Like I love, like, do you love Julian of Norwich? All will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Like I love that. And she's like, I don't know. She's some ancient, ancient somebody, religious somebody. But, but that all will be well thing. I mean, I can, I can kind of take it. I can kind of like drop a, into that. But I guess a six, for a six to drop into all will be well and all manner of things will be well is pretty, not, pretty, pretty hard. Well, I think that my skeptical brain is more kind of like, what do you mean by well? Mm-hmm. Whose version of well? Right, and, there you go. And what, yeah. like, well denotes po- something positive, I guess, and... It's not necessarily, but like, I can get with the program if what we're talking about is open awareness, Mm. Mm -hmm. but everything is going to be okay to me is more predictive in a way that feels uh, inauthentic. Right. So do you think it's more helpful instead of saying all will be well or everything's going to be okay, it's more that. So this open awareness and just observing reality without judging it. Right. Like is when after, more helpful. Yeah. Around the time that my dad died, I read a parable that was in one of my children's books. I think it was called Zen Shorts. Maybe it was in Zen Shorts. Maybe it wasn't. I remember, I remember it was that book. The Farmer's... The Farmer's... I can't remember the name, but the basic gist of the story was the farmer's son. The farmer has a son and the son runs away and the neighbor says, I'm so sorry. That's kind of like, that's horrible. And the farmer says, maybe. And the, yes. then the, the son, after having ran away, comes back with a bunch of horses that he's stolen or, <laughs> or been given. I, don't, I can't, I'm doing it, butchering this parable. <laughs> but then the neighbor <laughs> says, what great fortune. And the farmer says, maybe. And then it kind of goes back and forth where where you're being led from one situation to the other that ping pongs from good to bad to good to bad, and everybody wants to to pass judgment on the situation, the mm-hmm. the last iteration of the situation, as good or bad, and the farmers perpetually coming back with who knows, right? And that 
was I ended up reading that story at my dad's funeral because it felt very true to me in a way where I'd had this really, really challenging, horrible experience with my dad. But what it gifted me was so profound in terms of what felt like the ability to kind of see through the veil in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and, and be offered the opportunity at a young age to kind of rip the scab off of believing in reality. And, and so when I, was t- <laughs> when I was talking to my therapist and I said that, it was more that, like, I, it is more important for me to be offered the opportunity to just sit with what is than it is to put it in a container. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that's... I think that's... Truth. Irrelevant. <laughs> maybe, huh? What? Maybe irrelevant. No, <laughs> that's... realizing maybe that has nothing to do with being a six, but it's, no, it's I kind think... of a skeptical's take on... No, it was so helpful, Kathy. I was <laughs> going to say the exact opposite. I was going <laughs> to say so helpful and that that's sort of the nugget and I think that's where we're all trying to find forget I mean that's why I meditate every day is because mm-hmm. that's I'm trying to observe myself and I'm just trying to observe things as they are and not you know not have anything else going on with that which is so hard a six may construct an elaborate hypothesis about what is really happening in the partner's unconscious and in in the partner's unconscious and can develop an elaborate set of beliefs without any reality check. Once the hypothesis is woven, it is as believable to the six as an operating fact. So that's again where you just can't talk a six into not believing what they've already hypothesized is I like the way she uses the word woven. Mm-hmm. The hypothesis being woven. On the high side of relationships, sixes have many emotional facets and can be deeply moved. They are psychologically complicated and possess the potential for deep response. They are not intent upon manipulating a partner or wanting to take from them and can be extremely loyal when hard times come. They can put other people's welfare first and can feel another's successes as their own. Uh, I think that's beautiful and true. On the low side, uh, sixes tend to attribute their own feelings to a partner, so that projecting piece. If sixes love, they believe that they are loved in return. So that's like the hypothesis woven. If the six is angry and attracted to another person, then the partner is quite likely to be accused of being unconsciously angry or having an affair. Fascinating. Um So sixes progress more quickly toward higher abilities if they begin therapy or a meditation practice in conjunction with a physical exercise program. (laughs) So courage depends upon the body's ability to act appropriately from a non-thinking state of mind. It is doing before thinking. A time when the body acts before the acquired personality has time to intervene. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, as a runner, you've talked a lot about how that's true for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, we were just talking about, I have a group that I trail run with on the weekends and I, I was just talking about how wild it is to be running 
and have and the number of revelations that come while mm. only while I'm running. Amazing. Yeah. Like the body starts moving and you have to get out of a certain part of your head and there's just truths that arise or information that arises spontaneously and organically and it can be super wild sometimes. And do you feel that you're able to kind of trust that more, um, more readily than other downloads? I mean, I here's what I would say about that. I don't necessarily always feel like what's coming out of my mouth is true, uh, but it is, a, it is a, it's like a somatic energetic release that needs to happen. Mm. This mm. is actually what we were talking about because one of my running friends kind of reflected back on something that had happened that she'd said and she was apologizing saying, I feel like maybe I said too much or was too negative or something like that. And we were kind of talking about that and I was realizing that, right, like it's not necessarily that you're... Like sometimes there are revelations that I feel like I can trust, but what I do trust is that there's basically like you're you're squeezing the pus out of a zit that needed to be popped. You yeah, know? when and you're so running. You, yeah, yeah. So you can trust that what is coming up and out needs to, to come up and out. Yeah, that's great. It requires great faith for sixes who are habituated to doubting mind to continue on with their meditation practice or with a love affair, or with a project that raises their hopes, when for them signs of success are so easily erased by equally believable thoughts that argue away positive experiences. From the point of view of attention practice, however, faith is not a question of believing in false promises or using one's will to keep the faith strong. Faith can be seen as simply the ability to keep attention stabilized, on truthful, positive experience rather than falling into a biased, attentional habit in which questioning positive experiences seems more real. Hmm. I think that's a good definition of faith. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. That's something that where the Jungian stuff has been very helpful for me also. Right. I think it's really interesting that the Carl Jung work, I mean, maybe, maybe his work is powerful for everybody, but I think... It's really interesting to hear about how it specifically has been so helpful to you. Both the archetypes and with the fear stuff and the um, integration of shadow and light stuff for... Well, and it, it answers with... It, it answers with the lack of answer. Ah! The desire for an answer, like it. it ah, yes. It, yeah, I mean. And I, do you think meditation also does that? Yes. I mean, because there's no answer. Right. There's no there's place no to get, and there's no right way to do it, and there's no destination and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that to me, there's just a similarity in the exercise of like active imagination or mm-hmm. you know journaling or. Jungian dream analysis, all that kind of stuff is, it is, I think meditation for me actually is different Okay. Um, than these, the, these other things are more active. And I do think that it's important for me to have time where my, my the effort is going into inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jungian stuff is more helpful because it 
combats my addiction to finding a truth or an answer. Right. It combats the procrastination. But it's, or, or like what Helen says, it's putting action over over do, uh, over thought. Pre thought, action pre thought, which I think I think is crucial. Maybe maybe that's why it's so helpful. Yeah. It feels like action. Yeah. It feels like a creative endeavor. It feels, but it also feels as though it is moving away from anything binary. Right. And and. When I create, I simultaneously don't want, but also crave binary. In in that constant seeking of answers, mm-hmm. there's the idea that there is an answer, even though I know that there's not an answer. And the Jungian stuff is never going to be an answer. It's just, right. just it's just a, an experience and information. And maybe a maybe a, a modality too, mm-hmm. like a, a a way of being in process or something like that. Yeah, but meditation is actually like. It's very important for the moments where I just need to find stillness. Right. The middle of the night, like I'm not going to go into some Jungian, you know, or IFS situation in the middle of the night. Then mm-hmm. I'd just be up all night playing with these characters. Right. So meditation yeah. is, is for the, shh, just stop trying to answer the questions. Right. For a split right. second. Right. That's so good. I think we'll stop there. Is there anything else you want to say or do you feel? Oh, so much has been said. So much has been said. <laughs> it was really good. You're, you're so articulate. You're the most articulate six I've ever met. Thank so you. helpful. I love it. Wow. Thank you. Thank um, you. That was hyperbolic too. Was that a hyperbolic compliment <laughs> too? I don't know. Scared of my own ceiling Scared I'll die of uncertainty Fear might be the death of me Fear leads to anxiety Don't know what's inside of me Don't forget about